Now, the reason why it is so important that we see the larger context for the Sermon on the Mount in the whole is that there's a tendency with this particular message of Jesus to just pull out parts and then try to apply them in merely an external, moralistic fashion, but miss the larger application of the narrative of Matthew and what God is doing and saying through the scriptures. Similar to a song, think of a song and how we just don't play a part of a song and then stop and think about it. You play the whole song, maybe over and over again if you really like it, so that you get the full meaning and impact of the song. Well, it's very similar as we're reading the scripture and going through parts of the scripture. So, what I'd like to do is uh, go to my first slide, which is showing the, the nation Israel's condition at the time that this is going on, because, again, this is all very important to getting a fuller meaning of the passage on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I've just put a few things up there of the state of the Jewish nation, is that, one, they had an occupying force of another nation ruling over them, which was Rome, a very cruel occupying force. Uh, they also had political leaders that were in league with this force rather than for the people. So there was a lot of corruption, a lot of power plays rather than serving and caring for the people. Also, there was a wide class distinction with a lot of strife and unrest. There was a lot of racial tension within the nation. And so uh, we see this class distinction mainly rich and the poor, being so distinct with no middle class. And finally, a religious ruling body rather than a serving institution for the people. So the people were very isolated. They were very separated. They didn't have a say both in the religious leadership and in the political leadership of their own country. But then, as we read Matthew we see John the Baptist coming into the scene and announcing this king and a kingdom for all people. And John's message was that they would change their minds and their ways, be baptized, and prepare their hearts for the coming king and the kingdom. Now, last week, Pastor Brian, when he was going in there, uh, before we even get into Matthew 5, is that he wanted us to see the type of people that Jesus was speaking to and what was going on. So I'd like to go ahead and look at that slide really quickly, which is the scripture out of Matthew 4, 23 and 25. Who, were, who was Jesus speaking to on this hill as he was giving out this message in this sermon? So I'd like to just read this. And it says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, which would be similar to, like, we think of our area having the five cities, Well, this is called the Ten Cities region in that area. Jerusalem, Judea, and every region across the Jordan followed him. So we see, first of all, Jesus in a very large and public way brings the kingdom in power and teaching that literally turns upside down the prevailing cultural and religious norms. 
That's very important. My hope is that he'll do the same to us and through us because, as Brian mentioned last week, an over-familiarity with the scriptures or this particular message of Jesus can be a hindrance to this transformational work within us. But God desires to do this work in and through the lives of his people. And so as we read this passage here, disciples of every type from all over a large region, some had received healing in their bodies, some had received deliverance from their souls, some had been relieved of demonic oppression, some were coming to get healed and hoping to be healed. Many experienced forgiveness, had relationships reborn, all classes, rich and poor, because as we see later in other accounts of the gospel, uh, of the good news of Jesus, is that many well-to-do and influential men and women were his disciples as well, as well as these, quote, by cultural standards, lower class that Jesus was speaking to. Now, in regards to the Sermon on the Mount here, we know in Luke 6 it's repeated and added on to and deleted, And in other parts of uh, the gospel accounts, we see some of this teaching going on. So it's safe to say that Jesus repeated parts or the whole of this message many times, first because of its importance, and secondly, teaching was shared by word of mouth with each other. It's not like they had iPads where they're listening to Jesus and they're taking down notes here. It was all by word of mouth. They'd go back to their families or go back to their villages and share what Jesus was saying and, and sharing what Jesus was doing in power within people's lives. And finally, it's important to understand that this passage we're reading here in Matthew 5 is that Jesus is talking to his disciples, his subjects of the kingdom, as it were, future co-heirs who are going to rule and reign with Jesus in the kingdom. This is not spoken to people that had not come under his influence and literally been born again, because it is impossible to take the Sermon on the Mount and try to apply it in an external way and try to obey it apart from new life within. Okay? So there's a larger picture. So let's kind of zoom in a little bit into Matthew 5, and let's read the passage uh, starting again in verse 11, where Brian left off last week. And he says, Uh, Blessed are you when they, speaking of the world, revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they take a light and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, let's go back to verses 11 and 12. These are bridge verses. These are, Jesus is saying as a bridge between what's gone on before about the character and nature of those of the kingdom 
as opposed to talking about salt and light being the essence of what disciples are like. And it's interesting as we look at uh, the qualities of who a disciple is, that there can be an antagonistic response that is part of this life as being a disciple of Jesus. It's something that's a common thread throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In fact, Jesus warns us that if no one speaks evil of us and everyone praises us, our true discipleship comes into question. Something to consider, something to think about. So let's look at that persecution slide a little bit closer. And I've just picked out a few things of verse 11 and 12 where he says, For my sake, rejoice, jump for joy, reward in heaven, persecuted the prophets. Jesus is saying, thriving and flourishing and rich are you if you're persecuted for my sake, if you're reviled and lied against for my sake. Now, to the hearers of this, that's opposed to merely just being Jews and being persecuted by Roman officials, the occupying force, or being a lower class of citizens by being oppressed by the religious leaders. There's a difference. He's saying, if it's for my sake that this happens to you, then that's an important distinction for a disciple. Secondly, he says, I want you to rejoice and jump, jump for joy when this happens to you. Now, would that be a typical human response by any of you at all when you're lied about or someone slanders you or someone just basically tries to rip you apart? If you raised your hands, then I'll give you sainthood and we can go on from there. Okay, nobody here. So, honestly, can you see the impossibility, humanly speaking, of being able to do that? But Jesus is saying, look, if it happened to me, it will also happen to you. These are strong pictural language here. He's literally just saying, man, be rejoicing and jumping for joy. Well, why, Jesus? I think you're asking something that's impossible for me to do. Why would that be? Well, he says, because there's a reward in heaven for you. Now, this was something that was important to the hearers because remember, their life was very hard under the occupying force of Rome, under the ruling body of the religious leaders. Their life was hard, rugged, sometimes just food, you know, getting food and water for the day was a struggle in and of itself. So the idea of, of, of heaven was very distant. Because they were thinking of the Messiah, and here's Jesus as the Messiah saying to them, do this. And so, there's literally, understand that this life, this life right here, I'm the king, I'm, I came from heaven, I'm going to return to heaven, and I will return from heaven one day to bring the kingdom of God on the earth. And for those disciples, their, their existence wasn't just for this life. Jesus is saying, no, you have great reward in heaven and you'll receive these rewards. In other words, the things that you have now won't last, but the things to come will last forever. And I want you to be rejoicing when you're persecuted or reviled for my name's sake because great is your reward in heaven. And thus we can have that same hope. And that allows us to rejoice even though humanly speaking, we want to rip somebody's head off, right? And then finally, 
he talks about being persecuted like the prophets before you. Now, understand something. This is a mind-blowing statement to these disciples. Why is that? Well, let me give you a little context. Jesus was talking about all the prophets at one point, and he's talking about John the Baptist, and he said later on, John the Baptist was the greatest of all prophets that ever was. But he said those who are in the, the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than him. So to these people, the prophets were like superheroes. They were sent by God. They brought the word of God to the nation. These men and women who were prophets and prophetesses were mighty heroes. But Jesus is saying, look, you are on equal par than them. Actually, you have a better calling. You are basically my representatives, is what he's saying to them. You carry the word of this kingdom. And so I'm sending you out just like I did the prophets of old. So to them, this was mind-blowing. So think of yourselves in that same context. Whoever you might think of great heroes of faith or someone as you read the scriptures that really impress you, you know what? To God, to Jesus, your king, he is sending you out with the same message of the kingdom. And so you are going to share in the blessings as well as the persecutions. Okay. So, let's go on to what Jesus moves on to and says that you are the salt of the earth. Let me read it again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its savor or loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. So, I want to look at a few qualities of salt, what they would have heard and how it, what it means to us. First of all, salt was very precious in that time. It was hard to obtain. In Jesus' day, salt was a valued commodity. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt, giving rise to the phrase you've heard, worth his salt. That's where it came from. So, to these disciples, these followers of Jesus, he was calling them very precious, very valuable. Do you see yourselves that way? Do you see yourself as a prized possession that's valuable to him? I hope that you would hear that and see that. Secondly, next slide. Um, salt is a preserving influence. Salt was used to preserve meats and to slow corruption. So they were hearing within this that disciples of Jesus have a preserving influence on their culture. No matter what type of culture. It doesn't matter whether it was a tough culture like they lived in or a different culture that we live in. We have our own issues, don't we? We all have our challenges within every cultural milieu that we might live in, whether here in this country or around the world. The point is, is that because of who you are and that you are called salt, each one of us has the ability to have a preserving effect on our culture, a revitalizing effect on our culture, to even stop corruption. That is who we are as disciples. Let's look at the next one. Salt also adds flavor, right? How many of you like bland food? How many of you love salting your food? How many of you love over-salting your food? You can't get enough salt. 
How many of you have high blood pressure because of that? Ah. Anyway, <laughs> I could get off on that, but I'm not. So salt was used to bring out the taste of the food. So disciples of Jesus bring flavor, the flavor of eternity, to cultural life. Isn't that wonderful? That you bring a certain flavor to just the blandness of life. Because of the nature of the king inside of you, you naturally come across across with a flavor. You bring the flavor of eternity to our culture. The next one is medicinal. Now, salt was used for centuries to clean wounds. (sighs) Mama, very painful. Uh, uh, If you've ever had a cut and you get some salt in it, it stings, right? But for centuries, salt was used to clean out wounds. Even today, much better, pH-balanced saline water is used as one safe way to clean wounds. So think about this. Going back to the persecutions and reviling of you as a person of the kingdom, salt will do that effect as well, won't it? Salt will sting. Salt will bring a violent reaction sometimes. It's medicinal, it's needful, but sometimes the initial reaction is very antagonistic, very ouchy, as my wife would say. I don't use that word, she does. Ouchy. Very painful. But after the pain goes away and the wound is cleansed out, then there's healing and restoration, correct? So think about that. That's another reason that happens. So, finally, Jesus was mentioning about losing its flavor. Most salt of the ancient times, uh, gosh, that light's hard for me, it's my sight, were derived from salt marshes or dug out of the the earth. So, rather than by evaporation of salt water, uh, it contained many impurities. Let me turn around and I'll read it this way. The actual salt being more soluble than the impurities could be leached out, leaving a residue that was so dilute it was of no use and thrown out. That's important. So think about to these men and women as they're listening to this, they start thinking about the fact that they understood this fact about salt being mixed with impurities, that unless the impurities were removed, the salt would lose its flavor, its ability to do what it was designed to do, right? Now today, around the world, the main way of making salt is by evaporation through the sun, right? I mean, there's other ways it's made, but that around the world it's a pretty standard practice. So when we're thinking about impurities, what does that evaporation do? It gets rid of all the impurities by the power of the sun. The application for us might be that we need the sun to shine on us in such a powerful, warm way that it burns out those impurities so that we don't lose the flavor or the ability of what salt can do just as they would have thought the same thing. So that's a very important distinction. That's how you can lose your flavors because of impurities. May God have mercy on us. Okay. 
I'm moving quickly just because I want to make sure we have plenty of time. Let's go to the light scriptures. Jesus makes a very, very crucial statement here in saying, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that who are in the house. Now, the quality of lights for that day were portable oil lamps, candles, torches, very crude compared to us, correct? Um, And so that at night, when the light was gone, when the sun went down, it was dark. I mean, if you've been out camping in the desert or in the forest, and it gets dark, it's dark. And if you don't have the lanterns on, you start hearing things all around you that are coming to get you in your tent or whatever you're camping with. That's why my wife doesn't like going camping. She all thinks she hears things out there. I'm not bagging on you, I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, I, I have to repent. There's an impurity that needs to be baked out of me here. (laughs) But at night, a city would have all these torches and candles and and oil lamps going, and you couldn't miss it on a hill. You could see it for miles around. That's what Jesus is saying. You literally are the light of this world. Now, I'm going to do a quick illustration to kind of do this. I've got my little headlamp here, and... It doesn't look very impressive, I'm sure, right? With all the light that we've got here, right? So I'm going to have our team back there at the soundboard uh, go ahead and turn off all the lights that we've got, including the stage lights. Good. Now, that's a lot brighter, isn't it? That's, That's almost hard to look at, isn't it? Okay, now that I've blinded half of you, I think we have insurance policy covering that. But do you get the picture of that? The power within darkness, that light, has a great effect. Now look how light this room is now. Jesus was saying to the whole of the disciples, you are all light, the light of the world. Just as this room would be totally dark as it was a couple of seconds ago, without light, You so shine as a group of men and women and children who literally light up the darkness so that men and women can see their way to God. Now, sometimes you may not, as an individual, feel like, you know, you're a dimwat. I don't know. You may feel that way. The point is, is the Christ in you is the power. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he's deeming us as an equality there because of him living inside of us literally shines through. Correct? That's what the disciples were hearing here in this message. Now, have you ever been uh, woken up at night with someone shining a light in your eye? Do you get grumpy? (laughs) Or someone... Opens up the shades in the morning and you've got the sunlight hitting you in the morning. Maybe your husband or wife or your roommate decides to be funny. Yes. Or even worse, many people that have migraines become very photosensitive to light. If you have migraines, you know exactly what that's like. The lights literally have to be shut down because it creates this pain. Now Jesus in John's Gospel said this, that those who hate the light 
do so because it exposes their evil deeds. And so they don't want to come to the light. So at times when you are put up on a lampstand for all to see, you become an object of hatred. Again, going back to the persecution of those bridge verses that we looked at. Remember, Jesus said very clearly that if they hated me as the light of the world, so they will hate you also. So we can see both salt and light while having very positive effects for the kingdom and for their culture also can be very objectionable to many. So we live kind of in that tension sometimes, don't we? That's okay. It's good to do that because that's part of our calling. Finally, uh, as we're coming to the end, uh, in verse 16, Jesus takes the idea of being light one step further. He says, So, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is something the Jewish followers of Jesus who are hearing this would have understood clearly because of many passages in the Hebrew Bible. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I think we have a slide for that, don't we? Isaiah 60, verse 1. They would have known this passage. Uh, Isaiah basically is saying by the word of the Lord, Arise and shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. This is spoken to his people and what they were to be. And Jesus is simply reaffirming to his followers here that very same thing. But not from a distance. Because Jesus is the very representation of God in in human flesh. And his glory was here on the earth and shining upon them. Now, Jesus is not present here in physical body. He is coming back. But he has left the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to shine upon us. And that we bask in that glorious light of who he is. And it lights us up. But I need to add a couple of things to this about light. Because as we saw that salt can also lose its flavor, light, Christ's light in us and through us and upon us can be dimmed. So, I want to look at a couple of what I might call light restrictors uh, as before we get and finish up that are really important for us to see if this might be in our life as light restrictions. And I'll turn around so I can see better because of the light. Um, Here's a few limiters. Ignorance of God's purpose for us and or what he declares of us. A domination of self-interest. Fear that leads to self-preservation. And lastly, self and or human-centric exaltation. These are just some light restrictors that actually can dim the light of God on us and through us. Think of this in ignorance of God's purpose for you or what he declares about you. I put up a passage there in Ephesians 5.8. What one of many passages, what God says about you and I. But if we're ignorant of that, because what is the driving, main driving purpose of your life? What drives you? 
What motivates you? Only you can answer that. God knows. But you need to ask yourself that question. Because if it's, if it's the Lord, if it's his purpose, if it's his calling on your life, oh, then you know who you are. And you can shine in that and live in that. Secondly, uh, domination of self-interest. I put up that scripture in Matthew 6.33 that we'll be reading in a month or so, where Jesus said, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then God will add all things that you have need of to you, is what he says. Um, This domination of self-interest is a very subtle, but very powerful thing that can shudder the light of God as we are dominated by that. Thirdly, Sometimes that fear that leads to self-preservation can keep us and pull us back from being that witness, being that salt and that light, because we're afraid. We're afraid we want to be valued. We want to be uh, noticed. We want to be uh, kept safe, right? That's That's a basic human instinct is to keep yourself safe. But think of all the history of, of the martyrs for Christ. And over the centuries, those that have died for their trust in Jesus and being that light and salt. We really need to examine that we are not being dominated by fear that would lead us to self-preservation. But rather know that losing our life for his sake, there's preservation for eternity for our lives. And that we walk in that. And then finally, that self or human-centric exaltation. Romans 1.25 Whereas an evidence of the fall of sin in general in the world is that mankind worships the created thing rather than the creator. And again, this is for our self-examination. I struggle with all of these and more and have to always be on guard and think about and be aware of that and, and having the Lord show me these things so he can free me by, again, a refreshing of his nature and and who he is and his purpose in my life that allows me to be free from these. So I just ask you to think about that and uh, consider that. Okay, we're coming to the end here, I promise. I know preachers and pastors say that and then they lie to you, but I really mean it. I'm just owning up to our problems here. So to finish up... um, what might have this meant to, as Jesus, the disciples of Jesus heard this in verse 16 about seeing your good works? What does that mean? I mean, that, this is a very, to me, an esoteric verse. A very conceptual verse, but to bring it into reality is, is very hard in my mind. I find this very difficult. They would have recognized this from other passages about light, and so I want to go to a passage that they would have been familiar about And I don't have a slide for it, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58. In the Old Testament, roughly roughly in the middle or so, maybe a little bit further on. It's after Psalms, after Proverbs, after Ecclesiastes. And after the Song of Solomon, Isaiah 58. Oh, you know, I actually had my, my thing to that. Okay, Isaiah 58, and let's start with verse 6. And the context of what 
Isaiah the prophet is talking about here is he was, through God's voice, telling them, you fast for all the wrong reasons. You fast like it's a day to tear your clothes and to put dirt on your hair and to mourn. But he was saying, this is not the fast that I've chosen. So picking this up in verse 6, he says, God saying through Isaiah, is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. This would be social justice. Crying out for social justice in our, in our culture. This would, would be how they would have understood this, the Jewish believers. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring to your house the poor who are cast out? And when you see the naked that you cover him and that you do not hide yourself from your own flesh, meaning your family. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of your finger, condemnation, speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness will be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Oh God, we do need that. And strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I'll stop there. You can go on and read because it's really an incredibly powerful chapter. But there's an evidence. This is what it would have meant to them. It would have meant that they go beyond just simply a, a social consciousness that has words but no actions, no meaning. It goes beyond the fact of just giving of yourself away to serve and to love and to be compassionate and to be kind. And in the doing of that, the light breaks forth. There's a glory and there's a power where people say, this isn't humanly possible. It must be God. Words are good. Words are necessary to the preaching of the gospel. But works go right along with words of faith that produce action, that produce the glory of God. So, let's end. Let's respond to the Lord on that. Um, let's stand. How'd the band come up? As you listen to the scriptures this morning, as you've heard um, some of the exhortations of the Lord, some of the declarations of Jesus over you as disciples, um, we cannot help but respond to the Lord whenever we hear a message. Because Jesus said, if you do my words, then you're a wise person and your house will stand when the storms come. Literally, as the people of God, it's the obedience of action that is the result of a loving, devoted heart to God. So this morning, as we sing, however that response may look for you, we have rugs up here that you can come and adore the Lord. 
We have communion, which is taking uh, as, an, as a symbol of his body and blood, as our very life. You can come up here. We have some communion up here and on the sides and in the back. encourage you to do that. Um, if you need prayer for anything physically, just as we read about Jesus having the power to heal, to save, to rescue, um, if you have any physical needs, any needs at all, we'll have some people up here uh, to pray for you and to ask God for you and that you would receive the power of Jesus on you, uh, just as we read. It's not just for then, it's for now, for today. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, we'll have some women and men up here. I'll be up here as well. Um, either way this looks, I would pray that you would just respond out of a heart to the Lord, however he touched you this morning, with encouragement or with exhortation or with even correction, that we just respond to the Lord accordingly. Okay? Okay.